Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 107 being recorded on Thursday, November 9th, 2017. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, how you doing? I'm doing terrific, Scott. I feel like there's a, a number of exciting things I've been eager to talk to you about. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the Chicago weather first. Uh, um, it, it's sad. I feel like we've had a, a super mild winter so far, um, but this week it turned cold. So we've been in the 40s, and tomorrow it's going to potentially drop into the 20s and snow. So I've had to uh, uh, visit a portion of my closet I haven't seen in a while. Mm. What about nice. uh, Raleigh? Is it uh, beautiful and sunny still? It wasn't beautiful, but it is still like in the 50s, so I uh, enjoy hearing about your snow stories. Hey, I'm always happy to help you feel better about your life by hearing about mine. Thanks, man. Um, I would imagine you, that uh, you're feeling some extra warmth because I feel like there's been some exciting Star Wars announcements later to keep you uh, warm and, and comfy. Yeah, it's, it is a great time to be a Star Wars fan. We went through uh, kind of a famine there for a long time uh, and then we had the prequel trilogy which was exciting uh, and then we didn't know what the future would hold and then with the Disney acquisition the announcements are coming fast and furious so we have first of all we have two Star Wars movies just right in the pipeline right behind each other which is exciting as we record this 35 days until the last Jedi 34 if you go uh, on the actual opening on the 14th uh, 196 days for the solo movie so excited about that the little Star Wars story and then the big news is at the um, the investor conference call, uh, Bob Iger announced two Star Wars things. So Ryan Johnson, the guy that's directing Last Jedi, they loved working with him so much they've given him his own trilogy. So it's going to be some three-part story in the Star Wars universe but not part of the normal saga. Uh, and then they're also um, – uh, I'm sure you've seen this, but they're doing a streaming kind of a thing at Disney. This all the rage. Uh, everyone's unbundling, uh, and then now we'll pay eight times as much for all the content. But anyway, uh, they're doing a Disney streaming channel, and they announced a Star Wars live show will be on that. So a lot of great new Star Wars content coming out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the TV show is super exciting. I'm with you. Uh, I've been annoyed by all this unbundling. Like I, uh, I suspect you and I both had to buy the CBS subscription to get Star Trek. Um, I probably would have already had to get the Disney one due to my son. So maybe, uh, like in that case, I'm not as upset, but yeah. Um, and you and I have both been walking around with our iPhone tens for, uh, uh, almost two weeks now. So what's, what's the verdict for you? Uh, it's awesome. It is a great phone. The notch is not a big deal. The face ID is really cool. I really like it. It's very handy to buy stuff. It is a little unusual to just kind of like pick up your phone and look at it, um, but you get used to it. Uh, I have an Android phone that is the same feel as iPhone, and I frequently will take it out of my pocket and look at it, and then I feel really ridiculous because it doesn't look back at me. <laughs> it just kind of is like, what, you think I'm an iPhone? Uh, and then I whip out my iPhone, and it unlocks. Uh, so the Face ID thing is pretty cool. Uh, how do you like yours? 
I tend to agree. Um, a, I, how you're looking at your Android phone is how my son looks at everything that isn't like an Echo. Like, he expects all electronics to be able to talk to him. Um, but the I have been uh, super happy with the 10. I'm with you. Everything has worked pretty smooth. Uh, you know, the nit I have is I can, uh, without the button, there's not an obvious way to feel what the right orientation of the phone is. So I now find I pull it out of my pocket upside down or backwards more than I, I used to. Um, you get a feel for the camera bump. Yeah. Uh, camera I have a, bump should be on your right indexing. That, that, uh, I, I would, to be honest, there's part of me that doesn't want to like get a bunch of smudgy fingerprints on the camera. Uh, oh. not that I'm that OCD. Well, but, there. That's why I put the camera there. Gotcha. Uh, I'm think I did put the leather case on it. Uh, the kid tends to grab the phone a lot. So I felt like I needed some protection. And so now I, what I feel for is the, there's no leather in the bottom of the phone. So that's how you can tell. Oh, nice. Yeah. So that's worked out well. Uh, and what's killing me is I do use an iPad a fair amount and the muscle memory now to go back and forth between, I feel like I've gotten used to the, all the gestures and so the the button still being on my iPad is killing me. So I feel like I'm going to have to get a new iPad when they come out just to have them all work the same. Yeah, I, I like the new gestures. I don't like swipe down from upper right to get to the control panel because I frequently hold it one handed. And like that's a pretty weird gesture to do single handed. Yep. No. Uh, so I kind of don't like that. Uh, and uh, I did hear there's a rumor there, a uh, couple rumors on the iPad. Apple hardware side. So they're, I read a rumor they're working on a high-end iPad that will have Face ID and a bunch of other cool stuff. Uh, and then there's a lot of rumors going around about AR hardware that they're working on, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, I, there, you know, in some ways, there, there's not new AR hardware in this device, uh, but this is the first device with the horsepower to support, support the, the new AR software kit. And so there are some cool... Um, new AR apps that you can run on this phone that you couldn't run on other phones, which is pretty cool. We may, um, that may come up in one of the listener questions. Yeah. And, uh, this is interesting. One of these kind of, you know, these designers that kind of tries to pontificate what the future looks like of these things. They had this interesting observation that the sensors that are in the notch on the 10 are really everything you would need for AR glasses. So they, they took essentially kind of the, the look and feel of the 10 and they put that notch kind of on some bridge of glasses, and then they they made glasses kind of around them, uh, which is kind of interesting. I had never thought of it, but it is kind of interesting because it's doing the face ID and all the pieces you need to do that is exactly what you need to kind of turn that around and be able to look out at the world with with AR glasses. So, um, oh yeah, that could be kind of part of what they're thinking about. So an interesting thing, um, and this comes into play in some in store retail environments. Uh, the Microsoft Connect has been the the cheapest, ubiquitous sort of um, uh, 3D camera with in, infrared uh, distance measuring that was out there. And so there were tons of little niche applications that hacked some solution using that those Microsoft Connect cameras. So there's lots of these like 3D body scanners that you could potentially use for like uploading your avatar to your favorite e-commerce site or, or made to order clothing or measuring rooms for furniture and all, all these different things. Um, and there are a bunch of in-store applications where these, these Microsoft connect cameras got hacked in. Uh, Microsoft just announced that they're discontinuing the connect. And so that's going to go away. And of course the, 
uh, everything that was in that big camera module is now, you know, there's a better version in this little notch on the on the iPhone. And so I think we're going to start to see a bunch of interesting apps and use cases where they're essentially using an iPhone just for that that sensor array in in a bunch of uh, uh, fixed installations, and uh, which I think could be cool. You know, the bummer at the moment is they're going to be hard to source and they're going to be expensive for a while. Um, and I, I sure wish they had them on the back as well, because I feel like for for uh, retail uses, it would be very handy to have that sensor array pointing out so that we could use it for some other uses. Very cool. Any other uh, exciting gadgets to report on? Uh, well, I know you got a new one that I'm uh, eager to hear about. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. The other thing that I'm just over uh, overall excited for this week is... Uh, so we're recording this Thursday night, which is Friday morning in China. Um, so it's the day before Singles Day. Um, we'll talk about that. Like that would be an exciting event on the show, just anyway. But it's extra exciting because our very first show was a recap of Singles Day, which tells me that the next show we do will be our our anniversary show. Yeah, yeah, coming in on two years. Who knew? Exactly. I didn't think you'd put up with me for that long. It's been a struggle, but I've uh, managed to to figure it out. I I, I appreciate it. I'm, I can't speak for the listeners, but I, I appreciate it. <laughs> Speaking of listeners, um, it's been a while since we did a listener question episode, way back to episode 96, actually. So um, put, put a call out this morning, and we actually got a very strong response. Our listeners have a lot of questions. So let's jump into some listener questions. Our first one is not really a question. It's more of a statement. It's from Natalie Bowman, and she says, hello. Hey, Natalie. Thanks for responding to the questions. Hi, Natalie. Okay. And then uh, next question is kind of uh, interesting. Three people pose similar nuances of the same kind of a topic. So uh, the first flavor of this was from Sean Ching and uh, said, what do you think about a brand to run their own brand store, not through a marketplace such as eBay, Amazon, or Alibaba? So, so you know, should a brand have their own e-commerce site is kind of the flavor there. Uh, and then our a good friend of the show, Jamie Dooley, asked, uh, hey, Scott and Jason, have you heard of any brands seeing true success building a direct-to-consumer e-commerce business through their own website? So should you do it? And then have we seen anyone that's had success? Uh, And then he kind of adds a nuance. You know, it seemed like it was a big trend a year ago, but I'm not hearing about success stories. Uh, And then another friend of the show, Scott Silverman, he said, what do you think about uh, if there's a new brand uh, that doesn't have an e-commerce site? uh, Should they just start on Amazon or a marketplace like that? Um, And then should manufacturers be selling on their own e-commerce sites or just shut them down and sell via retailers? So, Interesting flavor kind of in this topic of brands going direct that we've hit on uh, probably at least every other week, if not every week. But what's your advice when a brand comes to you with with those flavor of questions? Yeah. Um, So I I agree they're all related. Uh, Sean and Scott's to me are almost identical, right? Like they're two spins on the exact same thing, which is uh, do you need to have your own branded site in addition to selling on the marketplaces or you, can you get by with just having a presence on the marketplaces? Um, and my strong advice to anyone uh, 
that's trying to build a long-term sustainable company is I would I would definitely encourage you to have your own uh, site in addition to you know whatever efforts make sense for you on marketplaces and uh, the reason I say that is a couple fold you're uh, in most cases you're not going to do the kind of volume on your own site that you're going to do on the marketplaces I get it um, and so it you know it may be a, your first effort might be your presence on the marketplaces and it may not be a, that appealing to invest a ton in your own site but the thing I'd remind everyone of is. Uh, we're all essentially digital sharecroppers on the the marketplaces platforms, right? Like uh, they they can change their terms and conditions uh, at any time. They could be horribly unfavorable unfa- uh, to us. Uh, we could uh, intentionally or unintentionally run afoul of any of their their policies, or or just be perceived to run afoul of them and get cut out of those marketplaces. There are all kinds of bad things that can happen on the marketplaces. And at any given time, you'll look at it and say, hey, yeah, I know there were some old marketplaces that changed the rules all the time, but Amazon has been much more consistent or, or Alibaba is much more consistent or whatever the case is. Um, and over time, that can just shift. So it's it's just really risky to have 100% of your um, brand presence be on this site that you don't own and you don't control and that your your landlord can essentially – uh, raise uh, your lease and change the, your terms or kick you out at any time. And so I do think it, it, it absolutely makes sense to have your own destination on the web that you own and you absolutely control. And to the extent that your brand can drive any organic traffic, that you can build any of your own following, it just makes more sense and it's more profitable to send those customers to your own site instead of to the marketplace. Uh, you can avoid the take rate, you can still, in most cases, fulfill through, you know, whatever fulfillment vehicle you're using on the marketplace. Um, and, you know, as you get to know some of those customers and build a relationship with those customers, like this gets a little dicey, but, uh, you know, there certainly is a percentage of your customers you can shift to be direct on your own site. And you just, you know, on those marketplaces, you're totally disintermediated from the customer. Um, and so you just, you know, even if it's only a small percentage of your customer base, you want a direct relationship with some customers, if only to get feedback, to be able to understand what kind of content is selling and not selling, and to be able to run A-B tests and do all sorts of other things. So for all of those reasons, I would say you absolutely have to invest in your own site. Um, and I'll, you know, I'll give you the caveat that it maybe isn't the first investment you make or the biggest investment you make. Is that, that fair to you, Scott? It is. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it depends where you're coming from, too. So, um, you know, there's there's many buckets of brands these days uh, and it, it's, you know, it's becoming increasingly easy to create a new brand. Uh, you know, when we were growing up, uh, you know, new brands had this like huge hurdle to launch them. You had to do a TV campaign and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and now we're just seeing an explosion of brands. So so I would use a framework where there's kind of legacy brands and then new kind of born recently kind of brands. And the life cycle I see with newly born brands uh, is uh, if we take and there's kind of two segments there, uh, but let's just kind of take the more scrappy entrepreneurial ones. They uh, to Sean's point, uh, I think Sean asked this. Yeah, they they start on marketplaces. So so marketplaces, uh, I think, are a great place to start. I call them e-commerce training wheels because they have these incumbent 
consumer is already there. So just like riding a bike with training wheels, it, it's hard to steer, pedal, and balance. So training wheels takes balance out of the equation. Starting a direct-to-consumer business, uh, you know, it's hard to acquire customers, build products, and get the products to the consumers and, and all that. So a marketplace uh, essentially gives you the training wheels by giving you customers and uh, kind of loaning them to you, to your point, or sharecropping them, whatever whatever analogy you use there. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, to your point, I think the, the next part of that life cycle needs to be, uh, you know, maybe you start on Amazon, you go multi-marketplace, but the, the, the sooner you can kind of create your own presence on the internet where you can control the brand, uh, the better. Um, and then there's a lot of tools to Jamie's point to kind of weave that in, the companies that have had a substantial kind of let's call it material, so over ten percent of their sales on their website, uh, there's a lot of tricks they utilize to do that. And uh, one of the simplest ones uh, is, you know, offering something special to your website customers. Um, you could you could think about special pricing, but that actually kind of creates this this a problem. So that's usually not what brands do, but usually it's special products. So, uh, for example, Under Armour, I don't know if their website is, I don't think they, they talk about this publicly. I don't know if their website's 10% of their sales. I doubt it is because they have that huge wholesale component. Yeah, I don't uh, think it is. Yeah. But, you know, one of the clever things they do on their site and, and it, it, I know is successful is if you're an enthusiast of their brand, that's where they launch a lot of their new stuff. So that's kind of like the exclusive channel for new stuff. And then there's this waterfall. Maybe the new stuff's there for, you know, uh, a month and then it kind of waterfalls into retail and then it waterfalls down into a marketplace or something like that. Um, so that's an interesting kind of thing. A lot of people do exclusives on different channels. The mattresses and a lot of electronic guys are king of that. Um, and then, then the digitally native vertical brands, uh, you know, what's interesting about kind of those is they start really with a website and then we've seen many of them kind of realize you can only get so far with that approach. So it almost kind of speaks to this diversification is the right strategy. So they are diversifying into offline. A lot of them are exploring marketplaces. A lot of them are exploring retail partners and those kinds of things. So, so I think the best strategy is a balanced kind of, um, from a risk and a channel perspective is to have a portfolio of channels and that includes having a website. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. And like, just to slightly more explicitly answer Jamie's question, uh, I think you hit it. Like all those, those, uh, digitally native vertical brands all, you know, hit the eight or nine figures in, in, uh, direct e-commerce sales. So that's, you know, Bonobos, Mod Cloth, Warby Parker, Casper, you know, all, all of those guys certainly do it. Um, there's uh, some some pretty big brands that we don't hear about as much for e-commerce, but, you know, I think are, are surprise people when you see how big they are. But like Revolve Clothing, I think, is a, a big one. And then, of course, uh, Stitch Fix, which, you know, arguably started out as a multi-vendor retailer, but but is shifting to a branded uh, to be more of a brand with their own products. I mean, uh, Stitch Fix obviously, you know, got got uh, pretty darn near a billion dollars, um, predominantly through their own website. So I, I think they're, I, I think Jamie's right that the hype um, was there before, and I, I absolutely don't think it's one of these things where you build it and you're guaranteed success. So you know, I think to to Jamie's point, there was probably a, a era a couple of years ago when everyone thought, oh, if I just launch a website, you like, I'll you know, I'll be uh, entitled to these sort of eight or nine figure, um, 
uh, run rates and and uh, you know we've certainly seen a lot of people fail, um, but there absolutely have been uh, and continue to be some successful site, sites in that space. Yeah, let, let's talk about uh, just failure for a second, or like what brands do wrong. Um, the number one thing I see is the brands. Uh, you know, everyone loves this map pricing concept, um, and many brands don't enforce it. So what they'll do is they'll set up a website and they'll, um, you know, they're 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 they have map pricing, so they adhere to that, obviously, because they believe in the policy and then they're selling stuff directly there. Uh, and then they will have absolutely no kind of understanding of consumer expectations around shipping cost and time. So they'll have, you know, a $50 widget for $10 shipping and, uh, you know, you can upgrade to three days for $40 uh, and, you know, the $10 shipping is the equivalent of USPS you know, week, week plus seven to 10 day type of delivery without tracking. Um, and then they're shocked when they don't sell a lot because, you know, why we put up this website and, you know, we have all this traffic and no one's buying things. Why is that? Uh, then you have to have that kind of discussion about, well, you're the single most expensive place to buy your products on the internet is your website. Uh, your shipping and, uh, you know, the SLA and the cost are just way off base with what consumers want. And, um, and then another funny one is, uh, I talked to a lot of brands and, you know, they go through the legal department and all this stuff and they end up like not doing basics, like user generated reviews and things like that, because, you know, they get really wrapped around the axle. Like, what if someone leaves a bad review? Should we go delete that? Or what should we do? And, you know, should we should we go after them with a cease and desist letter? <laughs> uh, and, you know, it, it's kind of funny to have those discussions because the people are reviewing their products right there on Amazon. But it just shows, you know, some of these legacy companies have such, such a hard time wrapping their head around this digital world. Those are some of the things I see that happen all the time where these brands really get off base with their web store. Yeah, no, totally agree. I've had all those conversations um, that, you know, there there is just a lot of back of house stuff that people tend to overlook when they're, you know, uh, used to a wholesale model and they're going direct to consumer for the first time. So to your point, like they generally woefully underestimate fulfillment. Um, not only are they, you know, selling, charging too much for, for a crappy level of service, uh, but it's probably also a side job for the wholesale fulfillment guys. And so the stuff probably sits in the warehouse for five days after you place the order before it even gets into the 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 shipper system. Um, and so there are those issues. And then, like, you know, there's a customer service guy and they that, that guy quickly gets overwhelmed um, with calls. So there, there are all those kinds of things. And if you survive that infant mortality, like if you survive all those mistakes – the next big stake mistake we see everyone making is um, that there's every brand for uh, for whatever the brand attributes are, whatever niche it's in, how well it's known. There's some certain amount of sort of organic traffic that's relatively easy for each brand to acquire. And for some brands, that's a very significant amount of traffic. For some brands, that's not very significant. Um but there, there always is some threshold where if you do the fundamentals right, you get to a certain level, and it then uh, you hit a wall, and it suddenly becomes much harder to grow. Um, and so the, the the real test for the sustainable direct to consumer businesses are, you know, once once you get over that that first trench of easy to get customers, can you? still be profitable and successful in growing beyond that original base 
or do you just you know cap out and you get stuck there or do you start spending way too much on customer acquisition i think that's a mistake we see a lot so so there there are definitely lots of pitfalls uh, and there's some good examples of of companies that have been able to steer clear of them Cool. Uh, let's jump into our next question, and then uh, we can kind of go lightning round on a couple of these. Uh, maybe we'll see. <laughs> um, Wait, that right. wasn't a lightning round? <laughs> that was Jason and Scott lightning round. Uh, okay, second question. This is from Ari Namani. Uh, he is the CEO of an Israel-based digital agency. And he says, uh, I'd like to talk about mobile conversion rate. Retailers are getting more and more of their web traffic from mobile, yes. Uh, but those users are half or a third is likely to convert. They don't seem to be coming back on desktop. So what's happening? We see this across the board where year-over-year traffic's flat, revenue's down due to the device mix over-indexing on mobile. How do we think about this behavior? Um, you know, Where are the users buying stuff if e-commerce is growing? Let me see. Uh, okay. So yes. And then, uh, I'll kick that over to you cause you have a clever name for it. Yeah. So we've talked about that on a couple episodes. I call it the mobile gap. Um, and it, it's, it's very real. Uh, you, you know, most sites are seeing their mobile traffic grow much faster than their desktop traffic. So they often would characterize that as their traffic is shifting from desktop to mobile. Um, and the conversion rate on that mobile traffic is, much lower than it was on desktop. And so you go, gosh, that's potentially not a very favorable trend. And we, we for sure talk with that with the, our friends from Adobe around the holiday episode. But I think, I think it's come up on a couple shows. And I was actually surprised to find out that we hadn't done a deep dive on it. So maybe that's something we'll, uh, we'll do at a future show. But I know you and I have done a number of live presentations where we've, we've debated the mobile gap. Um, and I guess what I would uh, say to Ari is the – a couple of things. Um, it most clients, uh, if you look cumulatively at your desktop and your mobile traffic, your traffic prob general at least most of the clients I look up, their traffic isn't flat. Their traffic is actually increasing, and so one of the things that's happening is some of those mobile visits that don't convert well are incremental visits. Um, and of course, there's a, a because it's so much harder to buy something on a mobile device. There's a lot more friction to check out. Uh, there's way, you know, less support for plugins in your browser. So your payment information is less likely to be, be stored in there. And we, we joke a lot about it taking three hands to check out on a mobile device, right? One to hold the phone, uh, one to tap the virtual keyboard and a third to hold your credit card. Um, the, that, that friction, you know, makes it less likely that people check out people also on mobile devices are, are generally in a more micro moment context, they might be at the red light and the light turns green, or they might be in line at the bank and get to the front of the bank, um, or you know they might be doing something um, where they're going to get interrupted in a much shorter period of time. So all that friction uh, leads to to much more abandonment, um, and so the, we are seeing things where where uh, experiences that reduce the friction improve the mobile gap they don't make it go away but they you know if you look at the best mobile checkouts they have lower mobile uh, mobile gaps than than the traditional bad mobile checkouts have um also a percentage of that is uh not real uh, is sort of incorrectly measuring conversion so so most sites you know uh use a simple formula conversion how many people bought uh, versus how many people visited the site 
And of course, mobile gives people a bunch of new reasons to visit your site. So a bunch of mobile customers are coming to find out your store hours or if you have something in stock um, or what store is near them. Those are all things they used to do with the yellow pages and the, and the analog phone um, and uh, with the newspaper. Um, and those visits are now coming to your site. That customer had no intention to buy online. They're ultimately going to go to your store. But those look like non-converting mobile customers. So, so some of it's an attribution problem. And then the last thing we talk about is this multi-device attribution problem where uh, because it is harder to check out on a mobile phone, a lot of people will build their list, do their preliminary shopping on mobile, um, and then they'll ultimately consummate the purchase on their their desktop browser where they you know are more likely to have payment information stored or or use a, a keyboard a, a password plugin or something like that 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 makes it easier to pay um, and because of the way that because we use uh, cookies um, when you come back on your desktop you don't and you're not authenticated as most users aren't uh, you look like a different visitor than the visitor that came on mobile so instead of it looking like Scott Wingo came to my site twice and bought on the second visit. It looks like Scott Wingo number one came to my site on mobile and didn't buy, and some unrelated Scott Wingo came to my site later on a desktop and did buy. Um, the you know I don't think that's the the dominant mode, but that absolutely is a mode. And interestingly, uh, at, at uh, Publicis, we we built this database with that now has over two billion device IDs in it that we can map back to individual users. Um, and sure enough, you, you see a, there still is a pretty substantial uh, chunk of cross-device shopping happening on a bunch of these e-commerce sites. So all of that is interesting, um, but here's the real bad news. <laughs> uh, the, you, you ask the great question at the end, if that's the trend, then how is e-commerce growing? E-commerce should be shrinking. If everyone's moving to mobile and mobile doesn't convert as well, why is e-commerce not shrinking? Uh, and the bad reason for that is because not every site suffers from the mobile gap. Um, and the sites that don't suffer from the mobile gap are, you know, the biggest, most dominant sites in the markets, right? So, uh, well, most sites have a very low percentage of authenticated users. Amazon has a very high percentage of authenticated users and by all accounts has a very healthy mobile conversion rate, right? Um, and so, you know, some of those sites at the top of the ecosystem that have a disproportionate cent, uh, percent of the traffic and sales also way outperform the industry averages in mobile, um, and that is uh, driving a lot of the e-commerce growth. Yeah, yeah, I'll, um, we could probably do a whole show on this, so I'll just kick it to the next question before uh, I get into a controversial topic that we have to go back So are you saying that was not a good lightning round answer? That was very good, um, and I'm not going to ruin it by, by adding on. Uh, Third question is from Alexandro Volakis. Uh, it's about omnichannel. So this is another one that's squarely in your wheelhouse. Uh, and essentially, uh, and I'm going to have to kind of interpret this a little bit. How do you decide where it's best to ship from? So I think what uh, what Alexandro is kind of thinking about is you get an online order. You've got ship from store. You've got a fulfillment center, you know. You probably have some complexity there. You probably have, you know, most of these omni-channel guys have hundreds, if not thousands, of stores that could ship the product. Uh, and then you have, like, let's say you have five fulfillment centers. Um, you know, what's the what's the logic you would kind of work with a retailer to think about that? Do you just kind of go, 
the product is closer to the consumer here, ship from there, or do you kind of, is it cheaper to ship from the store or is it more expensive? And how, how should people think about that? Yeah. So great question. Uh, and most retailers that have gotten successful with pretty complicated uh, fulfillment channels where they have a lot of different choices, uh, either because they're fulfilling from store or have a lot of different fulfillment centers, um, they're, they're all using pretty sophisticated software, sometimes that even uses machine learning um, to, to build a model for deciding how to do fulfillment. And so uh, normally we, we call those the solutions, um, order management systems, uh, and the big enterprise ones all have like very robust logic in them. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the, the way you're implementing that logic for most cases is you're actually thinking about three big factors. You're thinking about the cost to fulfill. So you want to optimize for the lowest cost to fulfill. Um, you're optimizing for the customer experience and the customer experience is, is generally, two big factors. One is how fast you can get it to that customer. Um, so you want to get to them as quickly as possible, obviously. And another is uh, you you want to get multi-item orders to the customer together. So you'd rather ship everything in one box. Um, not only is that more economical in many cases, but it's also just a better customer experience um, than split shipping from multiple fulfillment centers. Um, and the third is this this notion of inventory potential, um, and that that can get a little more complicated. Um, but essentially, what it amounts to is uh, whatever fulfillment vehicle you fulfill for this order uh, is going to leave inventory in the other fulfillment vehicles. And what is the likelihood of there being further demand for that next piece of inventory? So when you're getting really sophisticated, you you may uh, choose a fulfillment vehicle that isn't your cheapest because uh, it's likely to be the only demand in that particular fulfillment se- uh, vehicle, and there's likely to be other demand in the other fulfillment channels that's even lower cost for the rest of your goods. So I'm not sure I explained that super clearly, but like at, at one level or another, you basically are, are putting together uh, an, an algorithm that, that optimizes for that customer experience that potential to sell and uh, that that cost of fulfillment. And, you know, there are both uh, a number of enterprise off-the-shelf tools that do that, and there are a lot of uh, custom software that a lot of retailers are, have, have built over time to do it. Interesting. You know, uh, I will kind of dispute one thing. So awesome. I actually like it when, when Amazon sends me split orders and they send them to me when the stuff's available. I, I think that's a better customer experience. I don't think it's a better... It's cheaper for the retailer, but you, you kind of implied that it's a better customer experience to get all your stuff together. Uh, that assumes it all would come together, but I think most times you're having to choose, you know, do you hold up something? It's more of a least common denominator problem. So uh, great potential nuance. Like I would certainly agree that to a certain extent, like if, if I have an option to get two things faster than the other things and I – and that option is overtly presented to me and I choose to get them as fast as possible. I agree with you. I'm a shopper that appreciates that. Um, and so best customer experience for each customer is probably defined differently. One problem with that experience is it can get very complicated, right? Um, and and so I, I always use the Amazon versus Jet analogy. And Amazon tends to make all those decisions for you, but they tell you what they are. And Jet, um, you know, is is sort of in the model of 
giving you the choice of all those decisions and letting you choose for yourself. Is it split shipping? Actually, both companies kind of let you choose for yourself. But um, what uh, that the more friction that's in that choice, like you actually see conversion go down. Um, but the bigger issue is you and I are the least typical e-commerce shoppers in the world. And so for the overwhelming majority of people that buy stuff online, they don't understand any of the nuances of fulfillment. They don't understand that there are multiple fulfillment centers that have some of these goods. And so for most users, they simply believe that when they order three things that they're using together in a project, um, that that uh, those three things are all coming from the same source. And so when the 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 seller chooses to uh, split ship or even just drop ship from one of the items from a manufacturer and it arrives on a different day, what we see is a huge influx in customer service calls. So customer service calls on split shipments are way higher because customers just think something got left off the order. They ordered uh, shoes and running shorts and a running shirt, and they're using all three to go for a run, and only two arrived. You must have forgotten to ship me the third, and they don't understand that the third is coming direct from the manufacturer or from a different warehouse or from a store. And so, you know, for those customers, it's a bad customer experience to split ship. But for sure, I'll totally agree with you. If there's an elegant way to offer that to the customer, and make them understand, uh, then the best customer experience for each customer is whatever they choose. Yeah. And then um, another thing I'll throw into this is I think the omni-channel dirty secret is the ship from store and buy online pickup in store usually kind of sucks because I don't think stores know what's in the store like <laughs> half, half the time. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, some of my worst online shopping experiences have been ship from store and buy online, pick up in the store. And, you know, the ship from store stuff goes wrong um, because there's stockouts where they thought they had the widget and they don't. And that happens, you know, a lot more than a fulfillment center. Um, then you also have, you know, they always say, well, it's just walking around the store in someone's cart. We don't know where it is. Uh, but I think their inventory uh, is just really, really bad at, in stores. Uh, and then the other thing that goes wrong is you're, you're kind of having – it's tough because you've got this salesperson there and they're trying to, you know, imagine you're in the shoe department at one of these retailers and you have to know all about these shoes. And then some online order comes in and there's going to be part of your day where now you're a, a pick pack ship person. Um, so we get a fair, I would say the things we actually get that are in stock, uh, you know, a pretty, you know, a material, you know, five to 10 percent. There's usually some kind of error, like we've been sent someone else's stuff or they did leave something out or, you know, that kind of thing. So um, I know there's this kind of glossy omni-channel, ah, all your problems are solved. But I've found that most people really just don't do this very well. It, what, are there any industry stats that you see around that? Or Oh, or? yeah. So so you're for sure right that, that most people, when they first do it, totally suck at it. Um, and the one thing I would say is that there is a maturity curve there. And when people get over that curve and get good at it, um, the customer satisfaction with the experience is very high. Um, so I would say like the, the, the benefit of being excellent at both of those experiences at, at ship from store or buy online pickup in store, the, the potential upside is, is true and very high, uh, comma, it's, it's easy to do it poorly. And most people start out doing it poorly. So first factor you're, you nailed it. Uh, in-store inventory is a huge problem industry-wide. Um, and retailers never, like, the primary impetus to have super accurate inventory was 
um, was really your balance sheet for the most part. Like people didn't even like purchase based on their inventory levels um, in in many retail stores in the old days. And so like these experiences are the first ones to really put pressure on inventory accuracy in the store. Um, that inventory accuracy is getting way better. There's uh, both both machine learning uh, and um, newer inventory systems have made it much easier for stores to get better at store inventory. Uh, most of the big retailers now, both Target and Walmart, have robots running around the store taking pictures of shelves, uh, and they're taking inventory based on those pictures. So they've actually taken people out of the equation. We're starting to see some new store concepts that have intelligent shelves so they can actually, the, the shelves take their own inventory and know right when there's out of stocks and things like that. So the future of inventory accuracy is getting better. But at the end of the day, almost every retailer I've ever worked with that started a ship from store program started out with horrific me- uh, metrics. And so, you know, usually you have this this error code item not found um, and uh, you have this, you know, sort of uh, uh, percentage fulfillment. Like of all the orders I sent to a store, what, what percentage got filled? Um, and it's totally common to see. 50% of in-store orders be item not found or, you know, only be able to have a 50% fill rate when you first start shipping from store for because of the inventory issues and the employee staffing and, and competency issues and, all, and the customers having the inventory and their cart issues, all those things. Um, you can have huge failure rates and, the, and that creates a hideous customer experience. I've seen 90% um, uh, item not found or 10% fill rates in some customers when they first launch ship from store. Um, but if you, uh, many of those same customers I worked with that started out at 50% fill rates are now at like 94, 96% fill rates. So um, over time, they're able to put systems in places and process in place and be smarter about when they send the order to the store uh, and trying not to fulfill when they have really thin inventory and only one in stock. Um, and by implementing all those things, the fill rate goes way up and you can today absolutely look at a Target and Best Buy and see that they're generating a meaningful economic advantage against Amazon by being able to ship a, a, a significant portion of their e-commerce b- business from store, one zone, get it to customers fast and cheap. Cool. Wow. Um, I'm learning a lot from these. We should get listener questions more often. Okay. Uh, so Julia... Patak, or I guess is the P is silent, or talk. Um, how do you think about Singles Day? Um, are there some retailers who take part of the event in the U.S.? Amazon focuses more on Cyber Week and doesn't really do anything on Singles Day. Why is that? Yeah, uh, so great question. We'll be talking more about this. Uh, I am not bullish on Singles Day becoming a global holiday that's um, heavily uh, a, a big factor here in the U.S. And there, there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, it already is a holiday in the U.S. It's Veterans Day, which is uh, somewhat problematic for turning it into a, a high-volume shopping day. Um, Alibaba just doesn't have a significant presence here at the moment. Um, you know, so there were there were years when, when uh, Alibaba was having huge success in China and they were making noise about next year, it's going to be a much bigger Western holiday. Um, and what that's morphed into in my mind, uh, and, uh, perhaps we'll have them on the show here in the near future to defend themselves is they're, they're making it a much bigger deal for us brands largely to sell to, uh, 
Eastern consume, uh, customers that are celebrating Singles Day. So I think it's be- Singles Day has become a huge event for a lot of uh, my clients, for example, but it's because they're selling to customers in other markets. It's not because they're selling in the U.S. Um, I, all that being said, uh, you know, I think it is possible to uh, to create a new holiday here. Certainly, Prime Day is a, is a a great example in the in the West. But you know, another interesting one is uh, Cyber Monday has become a very big holiday in Europe. And uh, as most of our listeners are probably aware, um, they're not celebrating Thanksgiving in Europe. So it it is possible to create these shopping holidays. I just think the dynamic of uh, trying to create a holiday on Veterans Day. Um, a couple weeks before a very traditional shopping period, um, uh, you know, for a non-incumbent uh, company is is uh, rolling a rock up a pretty big hill. Yeah, and I, I will be a little facetious, and Amazon does participate in um, Singles Day, uh, but they do it in China. So uh, Amazon runs a T-Mall store in China, and they sell a lot of their devices there, and it just shows – uh, you know, China's interesting to me. We talk about Amazon a lot on the show because it's the one area where Amazon has not been dominant. And, uh, you know, arguably they're the number three or four player in China. And it's because Alibaba, uh, has really kind of dominated with a different local way of doing things that, that Amazon, uh, wasn't able to replicate. So because of that, you have some really weird things that must be, you know, kind of painful for Amazon to have to do. But an example is they do sell on Tmall, uh, and then they do accept Alipay. So this is the one region where, you know, Amazon doesn't control the entire payment world. So like in the U S they don't take PayPal because they have the power to kind of say, no, we want all that to flow through our system. So, um, little kind of fun fact for you if you didn't know that i did not know about the alipay part that's pretty funny cool and then uh second to last question so melissa burdick another uh kind of friend of the show uh how is the bankruptcy of toys r us going to impact amazon this holiday is it going to be a bloodbath in pricing with toys r us cutting prices uh, at the stores because of the bankruptcy and then amazon matching and then this kind of race to the bottom uh, so interesting question. Uh, I'm less confident in my answer here, but I think there's two two issues. Uh, is this holiday period going to be a bloodbath of discount pricing? Number like regardless of Toys R Us, like our our bunch of retailers going to start you know early and aggressive discounts, and is that going to drive pricing down for the whole holiday period? I think is an open question. Um, and frankly, I'm very nervous about that. Like all of the the early forecasts for holiday are for for pretty significant growth and robust sales. And the unspoken truth in a lot of those is most years when we have that kind of growth, it's because we sold stuff really cheap and discounted really deeply uh, and potentially because we had too high of an inventory position and then, you know, had to discount more deeply. Uh, So I think the fact that there have been a bunch of bankruptcies and more store closures than usual this year and more um, distressed inventory has has flooded the market and that that's caused more inventory, uh, full price inventory to get abandoned on the shelves. So I I do think we're going to go into this holiday season with retailers in a little bigger inventory position than they'd like. Um, and so I'm just frankly concerned overall that, that it's going to be a heavily promotional holiday period where we've already seen some early indication that everyone's going to start their sales super early. Um, so all of those things could just turn it into a bloodbath, not because of Toys R Us uh, current 
current uh, bankruptcy status. I actually think uh, that Toys R Us in their current status has a disincentive to aggressively promote. Like the stores have to operate profitably over a holiday. Um, and so I think they're not going to be the first one to drop their drawers on price. Like I think if they become really aggressive on promotions, it's going to be later in the season as they see how the the holiday is is uh, shaking up. But I think um, the at, at this point, they're not looking to, to liquidate inventory or those kinds of things. Like I think that's, you know, if they decide they have to close 300 stores and they hire Gordon Brothers to to come in and liquidate inventory, like that that potentially would create a bloodbath. But I, I don't think that's going to happen until 2018. So I, I kind of suspect uh, Toys is not going to be the the fuse that lights the the um, the discounting uh, uh, fuse, but uh, I'm not sure that we we aren't going to see a bloodbath nonetheless. Yeah, and I, I would just add, uh, I'm an e-commerce software guy, and I've learned a lot about retail over the years uh, that I didn't know. Uh, and I know Melissa used to work at Amazon, so she's definitely got kind of a similar kind of DNA on the digital side. Um, and there's a really good Bloomberg article that we'll link to in the show notes that talks about how all these retailers, these traditional retailers have really loaded up on debt. And, you know, what, what happens is they get acquired by a private equity firm. And part of their model is to take the assets and leverage them pretty highly, meaning piling on a fair amount of debt. And what this has done is left the entire segment pretty exposed to a disruptor like Amazon because uh, and, and Toys R Us is a good case study that you brought up. So Toys R Us has something like four or five billion dollars in debt. And uh, this debt comes in these tranches. So you have all that debt out there and it'll have maturity dates. And Toys R Us couldn't actually deal with about 400 million of that, which is what pushed them into bankruptcy. So what happens is when you, um, you know, so Amazon has no debt. And, you know, a lot of retailers would argue that Wall Street doesn't even care. They don't make a profit. And we've talked about that on the show. But what, what happens is you have a competitor like that. And they come in and, and make a pretty small impact on you. So maybe you'd lose 5 or 10% of sales. It doesn't feel like that would really ups, turn you upside down. But what's insidious is Amazon it knows everyone's margin because they have all this data. And you may lose 5 or 10% of sales, but that's probably your most profitable stuff. And maybe you lose 15 or 20% of, of profit or EBITDA. And that's what this debt is all priced against is, you know, 10, 15 years ago when this debt was piled on, everyone assumed that your profit margin would be the same in perpetuity. And then you have a new competitor come along and they're able to chisel away enough profit that it really tips you over. So uh, this article does a really good job of kind of it, it goes really in depth and looks at at that, which is pretty interesting. And it has a whole map that shows kind of the hot areas. And the whole point of the article is that you know, the retail um uh, uh, apocalypse is just getting started. So they, when, when you look at it from a debt perspective, uh, it looks like we're just at the beginning of a bloodbath. The other thing I've learned, uh, and this was uh, through a guest we had on the show is these at the mall level, all these anchor tenants effectively don't pay much in rent. Um, and they're because of the word anchor, they're there to draw other people in. But what happens is, so let's say you're a small mall based store and one of the anchors goes out of business Usually it's written in the lease that because you were drawn there by an anchor, uh, if an anchor leaves, you you are now freed from your lease. So these malls are unwinding at a pretty incredible pace. And 
there's I don't follow it that closely, but there's a lot of rumors that some of them are going to be sold and uh, you know, the mall, the large mall REITs because they are in such a distressed situation. So 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 this kind of gets amplified. Then then these things are not mutually exclusive. So now you have stores at malls that are anchors and have huge debt. And it, it's caused this kind of death spiral that's happening there um, that uh, at the mall level is kind of what I call mulligan. So interesting things that I wouldn't have learned about in, until uh, the podcast and, and trying to understand what is going on out there. That's why everyone should start a podcast. Absolutely. Or listen to ours. Uh, last question. So this is from uh, James Lacourt. Uh, how do you see augmented reality playing a role in e-commerce, and when do you think it will be mainstream and accessible to smaller retailers? Yeah, uh, another interesting question, James. We've done a VR, AR deep dive, um, and uh, I think Scott and I are sort of in alignment. Like VR is totally interesting for some other reasons, but I actually don't think it's a, in the near term uh, very relevant to e-commerce. I think augmented reality is potentially way more relevant, but it's. Uh, I think most of the use cases in commerce are actually digital in-store use cases. Um, so learning more about, uh, getting more of the digital content to learn about products when you're in a physical store. Um, augmented reality in e-commerce, the big use cases you think about are things like uh, how will that art look in my house? Will that furniture fit in my house? Um, what uh, the um, you know? Uh, what would this clothes look like on a a virtual representation of me or me in this mirror? These kinds of things. Um, and what's interesting, the rudimentary version of that technology is all out there. Oh, I should mention the like virtual makeup stuff when beauty stuff, which is has become quite good. Um, so the, the technology is all out there. It's evolving very quickly. And so both Google and Apple have really robust um, new AR kits built in in the latest version of their operating systems. And um, you look at the kind of experiences you can have on those, those um, devices, these latest devices that are using these AR kits, and you go... Man, that's really compelling. So if you have an iPhone 8 or an iPhone 10, um, I'd highly recommend you download this app called Housecraft. Um, and Housecraft uses AR to place furniture in your house. Um, and it's, it's amazing. It's much better than some of the rudimentary stuff you've seen from some of the retailers. Uh, Warby Parker has already leveraged the AR kit in their app. Um, for virtual try-on of sunglasses. And so you think about uh, the face recognition uh, technology that's in the iPhone 10 and the hundreds of measurements it's taking in your face. Warby Parker can take out of the AR kit all of those measurements, put them into a, a deep learning system, and recommend sunglass frames to you that are best suited to your face. Um, and it creates an amazing AR experience. And so you look at those things and you go, man, that is the future. That that really is going to become mainstream. Um, but then there's a big uh, Debbie Downer in terms of how fast it's all going to happen. Uh, those AR kits only work on a small percentage of the hardware that real people own, right? So it it only runs on the, the latest uh, and greatest hardware. Um, so we have to wait for a couple upgrade cycles to everyone – for everyone to get up to that that hardware. And then at the moment, those best experiences are really only deliverable through apps. 
Um, and we've talked about this a lot on the show as well. But for most retailers, and for sure for small shops, it's next to impossible to get a, a meaningful volume of customers to download and use your mobile app. And so what we really need is this robust AR capability to, to be available in the web uh, browser, not in the app. And it is coming. Um, it's just still probably a couple years away. So I think right now we're at the point where on the best hardware in an app, customers are seeing experiences that really can drive conversion and sell more stuff. Um, and I think we're going to see more examples like the Warby Parker app that are going to be very, very persuasive. But it's probably another three years before um, the majority of consumers have that capability in a web browser. And that's when it becomes really meaningful for those medium and small size shops. Yeah, and I would add, so another challenge for a small size shop is the 3D models. So to put your products into this 3D world, you have to have models of them. And this is not a trivial skill set for folks to have. And there's not a great solution for just kind of, you know, imagine you ran, I don't know, a, a sports store and you wanted to put everything into a virtual world. Uh, there's no really good off-the-shelf solution for kind of scanning that stuff uh, that that a mere mortal could handle and build the models. So that's going to be another one is like, how do you partner with, let's assume you're a retailer, a multi-brand retailer, you're going to have to partner with your brands and uh, they're going to have to have a level of sophistication where you call and say, hey, I really need 3D models for all your stuff. They're going to have to know what you're talking about. And many brands struggle just to get you the the current kind of 2D digital assets. So that that's going to be an interesting challenge to see who solves that because you could end up in this scenario because Moore's law is applying to all these other things that pretty quickly we get the hardware, as Jason mentioned, all that stuff solved. And it's pretty easy for you to have a platform, but you just don't have the assets. Yep. And although I would point out to you, Scott, you take that, uh, that iPhone 10 sensor array in the notch and you put it on a turntable and you suddenly have a pretty darn good, cheap 3d scanner. And so, you know, you, you could imagine, that uh, the ability to, to 3D scan at very high quality at uh, a very low cost um, is something that Moore's Law is also going to deliver to us over the next two or three years. Cool. Well, we really appreciate everyone asking uh, the questions there. And we have about five or ten minutes to catch up on news. And it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show without Amazon news. <laughs> Amazon News. Your margin is their opportunity. Jason, you had, uh, let's kick it off with you. You walked into your Whole Foods, uh, was that today or yesterday? And, and you had an interesting situation. Tell us about it. Yeah, that was today. Uh, so there's a nice two-story Whole Foods in my neighborhood. Downstairs is a very fancy coffee shop. Um, and upstairs is the store. And uh, when I walked in the store today, a big chunk of the coffee shop had been taken up by these temporary walls with all this uh, Amazon signage. Um, and it looked like they were implying some kind of shopping experience was coming. And I, I got a chance to talk to some of the the employees that were doing it. And it turns out they are. this is a permanent installation uh, that's going into a bunch of uh, Amazon stores in Chicago. Um, and it, it basically is an Amazon device store uh that's going into whole foods so another you know man staffed place where you can go and get a echo demo or a kindle demo or a fire uh demo and it sounds like they're going to have inventory for sale 
um, in the store and, uh, and ready to go. Cool. So every Amazon bookstore has that like little Apple like section. So you, you're, you're kind of envisioning it'll be like that couple tables. Yeah. And in fact, I got to see the fixtures and they look like they're straight out of the Amazon store. Ah, okay. Interesting. Uh, and then there's also interesting news uh, where uh, I forget who broke this, but um, Amazon is doing this interesting thing. So uh, if you're a third party seller and Amazon detects that your price isn't competitive, what they'll do is they'll actually discount it. And it says sold by this third party seller, um, but then discount provided by Amazon. So, you know, Amazon, it's pretty well known in the industry that they monitor prices across the internet in near real time. So I think what's happening there is they probably realized they were expensive in a couple areas, especially that kind of part of the curve where they rely on third parties to sell things somewhat exclusively. Uh, and they decided they wanted to not be disadvantaged there. So they're actually funding that. And it's interesting. So, you know, on average, you're going to pay as a third party seller, you pay Amazon 10%, but they, they kind of are selectively saying, mm, you know, we're effectively, and, and I, the ones I've seen have been under 10%, but they could in theory actually go beyond that and say, look, we want to be competitive enough here that we'll fund even past what the third party is selling to us. Um, I actually figured out how to do a Google search and Google indexes Amazon pretty much real time. And I found about 3000 items that, that had this set. So this is out of Amazon's like four or 500 million. This is not a huge thing at this point. Uh, but the thing I thought you would find interesting is everyone, I kind of, I didn't look at all 3000, but I, I paged through pretty quick. They were all in the beauty category. Yeah, it, it was super interesting and clever. Um, so obviously, as, as most of the regular listeners of this show would know, Amazon has a pretty sophisticated pricing algorithm on their 1P product. Um, and, you know, when they sense a competitive situation, they're, they're very likely to be a fast follower. Um, and they, they see a lot of advantage in overall customer lifetime value, even if they have to sell something um, at very narrow margins or even negative margins in the short term. And, you know, the liability traditionally of a marketplace is you you. Amazon doesn't have control over the pricing of that 3P product. Um, and so then you think about, hey, what are some categories that Amazon doesn't compete in in 1P um, but would really like to control prices in the 3P? And, you know, there are certain kinds of products that that are tough for Amazon, um, and one of them would be, like, private label cosmetics that have no interest in selling on Amazon, but a lot of third parties and gray marketers will buy and and list on the Amazon market. So that could actually be like Ulta product um, that should be exclusive to Ulta that's on the Amazon channel. And this tool gives them an opportunity to, uh, or gives Amazon an opportunity to get really price competitive on that. And, you know, in, in many cases, that gray market product, like those sellers are relying on uh, selling because of convenience. And so they often aren't super price competitive. So this is a way for, for Amazon to, to offer a competitive price in those categories where it, it wants to compete in the long run. So that that's pretty clever. But what's interesting is there's a bunch of not obvious unintended consequences of this program, and it, it's going to be funny to watch them all play out. So there's all these things you wouldn't think about initially, but I'm sure Amazon's thought through. One is something like returns. So, you know, the seller offered offered a, a cosmetic for fifty bucks. Amazon discounted it to forty bucks, so the consumer only paid forty. Uh, when you return it, um, you know, 
Amazon has to to uh, refund part of your money, and the, that seller has to refund it. So all that stuff has to work out. Um, but uh, another big one is some of those sellers um, either have uh, the, if they're authorized sellers of a product, they very likely have uh, you know are complying with some some pricing requirements from from their supplier. So they they might have agreed to offer prices only at map price, minimum advertised price. Um, and Amazon potentially could be discounting below that minimum advertised price. So even though the seller is complying with their their pricing agreements, um, they're involuntarily out of compliance with that agreement because of this Amazon discount. Um, and I think another scenario is uh, sellers that have promised to offer the same price to multiple marketplaces, and then Amazon discounts it, so effectively they're no longer uh, complying with that agreement. And so... Um, the, you know, those are all going to be some, some, uh, potentially sticky situations. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see if any manufacturers come go after their sellers, uh, as a result of Amazon's, uh, uh, price judo. Yeah. Yeah. It's gonna be interesting to see how this plays out and there's solutions to all these things. So if you, you know, you could imagine that if you don't want Amazon to do this, there could be an opt out kind of a thing. And they've done that with a bunch of other programs. So, all these things are solvable, but it, it is pretty interesting to see Amazon do this. And um, you know, there must have been some pressure in the beauty category that caused them to think about doing this. I, I, don't, uh, I don't know exactly I, what's going on there. One other thing that maybe is an opportunity uh, for someone out there, like maybe Channel Advisor should do it. But um, uh, if you were a seller that used to be selling that good at 50 bucks, um, and you were competing against guys that were selling it at 60 and you suddenly see that Amazon is dropping their price to 45 um, there, there's a strategy of optimizing your price in order to entice Amazon to discount it as opposed to trying to compete for the buy box yourself. Yeah. And I don't even know if you as a third party seller know when this is going on. I don't think you get notified other than by seeing it on the site. I think you'd have so, to have a site scraper that would do that for you. So I, it's a complicated scenario. Yeah. And Amazon's really good at shutting those down. <laughs> uh, or so I've been told. The uh, so in one of the biggest things in the news this week that was really interesting was Amazon private label. And on episode 103, we did a deep dive in Amazon private label. Uh, and what's exciting this week is uh, when we did that deep dive, uh, one of the things that inspired us to do it was there were some rumors that they were going to be competing with Nike and Under Armour in the kind of athleisure and apparel sports apparel segment. Uh, and in true Amazon fashion, some of those actually launched this week. So <laughs> it's kind of funny. I think these things hit the press, like either Amazon's just incredibly fast or they only get wind of it right as it's at the end of its cycle. Um, so, so this week there's, uh, and a lot of these things get discovered too. So you can actually go watch when Amazon files the, um, the trademarks for a lot of these. Um, and then they use similar lawyers and there's a lot of investigative reporters that dig into this. So, uh, the two brands and we'll put links to these in the show notes. Uh, can we do that Jason or are these too wacky to put in show notes? No, I could totally put them in the show notes. Okay. So, um, so the first one is, so there's three in the sporting goods category, rebel Canyon, two words, peak velocity, two words and good sport, one word. Uh, and, um, I mentioned it in the show 
how do you how do you kind of know and when do you consider these to be officially a private label? And when it has its own kind of logo and a fair number of SKUs, I do, and all these meet that criteria. So Rebel Canyon is a mix of Prime exclusive and it has some non-Prime exclusive. They have about 131 items and it's mostly men's. So it's men's sweatpants, shorts, and sweatshirts. Um, and these are on the inexpensive side. So these are kind of like $30, kind of competing with that champion level of sportswear. Uh, and then Amazon describes it as a way of life and a style you'll, you'll wear on the regular. Um, or as Scott so, and I call them, work clothes. Yeah, <laughs> I call it business casual. Um, so, and it has a little bit of women's too. Uh, and then peak velocity is, uh, you can tell it's more um, experiment. It's prime exclusive. There's only seven SKUs. Uh, and then this is kind of higher end sweat kind of stuff. So there's like an $80 hooded fleece jacket. So it has some more fleece and higher end kind of quality. Um, and then it also has moisture wicking and breathability. Who does that sound like? Yeah, that those SKUs are exactly in uh, Under Armour's uh, wheelhouse. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I've I've seen people kind of actually find the corresponding uh, Under Armour and Nike SKUs, uh, and the similarity is eerie. Uh, another one is called Good Sport, and this is the one that's all together one word: G O O D S P O R T, and it does have humpback. Um, capitalization. Uh, these are prime exclusive. There's 32 SKUs out there as of this recording. Uh, and this is quote unquote, men's and women's moisture wicking, uh, ath- uh, you know, athletic wear. So very interesting. And, uh, you know, some of these folks on wall street are pretty interesting. They actually can kind of figure out the supply chain. And what I read an article that said that these are coming from, uh, Taiwan and they're using a manufacturer called make a lot industrial and Eclat textile. Uh, and these are two of the largest producers for Nike and Under Armour. So, you know, this kind of outsourcing things to China in a way is, is kind of, uh, backfiring a lot of brands because these same factories are working directly with Amazon, cutting out the middlemen, which in this example are the brands themselves, uh, and selling these things with an Amazon brand on them. Uh, two quick other ones. So uh, another thing that was interesting is, and I I didn't know about this, and I saw uh, Wayfair's stock go down like five percent one day, and I was kind of like, oh, why? What's going on there? And what happened is people found that Amazon also has launched two furniture private label brands. Uh, the first one's called Rivet, and this one is this is pretty robust. So has over eight hundred SKUs, and it's called Stylish and Versatile Mid Century Modern Furniture and Decor. This is very much out of my wheelhouse, so I don't I don't uh, I'm not an expert on this. Uh, at whereas sweatpants is very much in my wheelhouse. Uh, these are ex- they, they kind of talk about being exclusive on Amazon, free thirty day returns, and a one year warranty. Um, so that's pretty interesting. Just called Rivet, um, and it has an interesting little logo. Uh, Amazon usually just uses the word in kind of an interesting way. Uh, and the second one's called Stone and Beam. Uh, and this is uh, furniture for comfort and durability. Uh, let's see. The one Wall Street analyst talked about, you know, the, the compared sofas. And Rivet had kind of a $700 sofa. And Stone and Beam was more like a $1,000 sofa is kind of a way to compare those. Uh, and Stone and Beam has a three-year warranty, whereas Rivet has one. So uh, interesting. And as I was poking around on these things, I was I was actually trying to replicate that, finding the same similar kind of skew with Nike and Under Armour. So I was searching a fair amount for, uh, uh, I think, Nike. Uh, and you know how on Amazon they have the whole, this 
frequently search people that search for this brand frequently look search for these. So I was searching for Nike and they said people that search for Nike frequently look for Peak Velocity, Rebel Canyon, and Good Sport. And it was kind of like, oh man, that's kind of scary. And especially uh, since it's impossible that people are frequently looking for those. Yeah. Yeah, I have a feeling they're not. Uh and then uh, last little piece on this, uh, I guess two little things. So Amazon puts out a little bit of a holiday gift guide and uh, very high, especially in the fashion section of that gift guide, are all the private label brands. So you, you flip through there and there's Larkin Row, which is the women's fashion, Lovely Tote, which is their handbag, The Fix, which is shoes and accessories, and then Amazon Essentials on the basics uh, are really highlighted in there. Uh, and in the fashion world, this has got brands – pretty much uh, all twisted up. I I don't – all this is secondhand from some articles, but it seems like it's really got people agitated. Um, And then last one uh, in the private label stack is CPG. You and I have covered this. Uh, Amazon put a diaper out there about a year ago now, maybe a year and a half, called Mama Bear. Uh, And then they yanked it off the market pretty quickly. They weren't happy with the quality and got some bad reviews. They've now put – they've relaunched diapers. Um, And the article I read actually went and said – kind of named the old manufacturer who I don't remember. Uh, and then the new one is like Kimberly Clark, which is evidently a, a manufacturer of a lot of these, these diapers. So, uh, inter- you know, it just shows Amazon, uh, is really focusing on this private label area and they're w- willing to be patient and grind it out and find the right products and keep just kind of chewing away at this. It's, it seems to be pretty strategic for them. Exactly. And uh baby geek is wearing mama bear diapers right now. So we'll be looking for the the full review of that in a week or two. Nice. You're fast on that, man. Uh, I, I think you can't just order them yet. I think you have to, it's a prime exclusive and you have to request it. And uh, uh, my wife was nice enough to do that for a test market. So we, we have a box of them here now. Cool. Well, Scott, uh, it has happened again. Um, we've used up slightly more than our allotted time, uh, but great conversations. I particularly like all the questions from listeners, and we'd love to keep that dialogue going on our Facebook page. So if you have any thoughts or follow-up questions about today's show or questions you'd like answered on a future show, we'd love to meet you on Facebook and, and uh, let us know what you're thinking. Uh, of course, if you enjoyed today's show, we greatly appreciate you taking a couple minutes to jump over to iTunes and give us that five-star review. Uh, if you didn't enjoy today's show, you're welcome to call Scott and give him uh, your opinion in person. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. We really appreciate those questions and uh, look forward to keeping the conversation going. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.